In 2016, Earth detected a signal from an unknown region of space with no observable stars. The contents of this signal appears to be a series of data packets and a decryption key. Once decrypted, the data contained a number of logged entries from two planets in a binary system. Using the translation matrix sent in the data packet, researchers have translated the entries into English. The following transmissions were declassified and given to us to present. Log entry, Haimavina 13, 2269, 69th year in the Age of Ascendance. Hey, hey, Passing Wind. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. I told Luna, but she's a good secret keeper. So, did you end up joining the diplomatic corps? We don't have much need for that here, since we are one society. But I can definitely see how it would help on Vila, especially given the political divisions you've told me about. I think you have a great level approach, and I can imagine you would be fantastic at helping people communicate. Speaking of the political situation on Vila, have the relations between Chonar and Lara normalized? Or are they still refusing to communicate with one another? That sounds like a very difficult situation. Have you heard from your father? And how's he doing? How's his research going? Hopefully, he is well. A lot of things here have changed in the past few years, so let me bring you up to speed on our exploration efforts. EC Aeronautical Labs, or ECAL, as they've rebranded themselves. I know, I rolled my eyes too. Which is the organization responsible for managing our space program, is up and running. This isn't perhaps shocking to you, but remember that ECAL didn't exist eight years ago, and we'd never been to space. It's a wonder what can be done when the Samcoma agrees to transfer 27 Hamdar to a budget that no one is ever going to be allowed to audit. To give you some perspective, the yearly operating budget for the city of Hopnina is 2.3 Hamdar, for a population of just under 2 Sindar Mana. And while that might seem like a lot, it covers everything, including our education, transportation, ports, law enforcement, and healthcare systems. The amount of money eCal is burning through is simply staggering. I'm beginning to think this is like an old Segelbator, which is just a hole in the water you throw money into. Don't get me wrong, I'm an expansionist, but there is no oversight. Well, disturbingly little. Read that as functionally none. ECAL claims it will audit itself, which has got to be the oldest bureaucratic trick in the book. I can't think of a single instance where that turned out well for the one transferring the money. Complaining aside, nobody can argue with the fact that ECAL has been conducting manned orbital missions to survey Braddoth and its twin moon, Randir. They're clearly spending the money somewhere, and I bet they're even making a nice profit from the toy and t-shirt merchandising deals. Not to mention that every single Yothian child now wants to grow up to be an EC astronaut. Ha! Yes, Gisto, fair enough. I did want to be an explorer, but it isn't cool now because nobody wants to stay on the ground. I can only imagine how hard it is to get into my old academy. I probably couldn't get in now, even with perfect scores and a famous grandmother. Any future kid I have is frosted. Anyway, the launches are now a monthly occurrence, and some of the environmentalists have begun voicing their concerns about the pace of the launches and the potential impact on the environment. Those voices are a few for now, but it's hard to change your opinion on something you've already voted yes to. Anyway, in the wake of the discovery on Bradford Station, a team of astronomers started to survey Randir, hoping to locate the same signatures. This has been a real technological challenge because Randir's orbit is farther out. You know what? Before I go into what we've discovered, 
let me tell you a little bit about our system so you have some perspective. Although it occurs to me that you probably know more about it than I do because of how closely your father works with the EC astronomers. Okay, get ready for an elementary school education in astronomy. The system of our star Aluda has four planets. The first is Skumascote. It is the smallest and the closest to Aluda. It's basically an orbiting rock. There is no atmosphere. Vicini is the next planet. It has a very thin atmosphere, but EC scientists have told me it would be like trying to breathe on the summit of one of the twin sisters. Vicini has a small moon named Carasta, which is a floating rock. In pictures, it almost looks like it protects Vicini with all the craters. The next one is the Mana homeworld of Haimavina with our two moons. Farther out is Radhajaust, a large gas giant with seven moons. One of those is named Enderfidor, which is about the same size as Schemascote. It probably could be classified as a planet in its own right. This topic is a favorite discussion among EC astronomists who have had too much to drink at the holiday parties. It's honestly why they rarely get invited to things, and telling you all about this is giving me flashbacks to my younger days as an easy intern. <laughs> okay, back to Randir. ECAL survey scientists looking at Randir have located what they think is a station that is similar, but smaller, to the one located on Braddoth. The insulation on Randir appears to have fewer, but perhaps a smaller, port and other facilities. ECAL astronomers theorize that Randir's base is older, perhaps even the original Mana space-based facility, due to its size and types of facilities ECAL thinks they can identify. Some people I've spoken to within ECAL think that the Randir base was used as a research facility, and the Braddett station, because it's so much larger, was commercial. I mean, just based on that old message we've collected, it seems like a workable theory. Obviously, we won't know for certain until we can get astronomers up there to explore the sites. To answer your next question, because it was mine when I was interviewing one of the astronomers about this whole discovery, yes, it does sound odd that we didn't notice Randir Station before. She said that even though you know it's there, it's nearly impossible to find. We were talking about an ice cube floating in the ocean. When I look at the pictures and I realize how large both Braddoth and Randir are, it makes a lot of sense. We could have looked at those moons for centuries and not found anything. Collecting that signal was a stroke of luck. Well, talk to you soon, Passing Wind. <laughs> I promise, that's the last time. Your friend always, Iria. Log entry, Vela 13. Vela Rotat, 2591. Cycle 2 of the second annual. Iria. Top of my to-do list is to contact a friend at the Academy of Ocean Sciences and to add Iria to the list of potential names for the next species of sea slug that gets discovered. This will stay on that list just in case that nickname ever returns. With regards to your ECAL, I have no words. The amount that you are describing sounds like a lot of money that could help a lot of mana on your planet. I completely understand the drive to get into space and to learn more about the signals you are seeing, but to have no oversight and no way of knowing what that money is going to seems unfathomable to me. The council here would be a storm of rage if any agency sought to do something like that here. I'm sure that Trenoir was only a small fraction of that sum and you saw what happened with that. 
is it possible that they have other plans for that funding that may not be in line with your general populace? I've been learning a lot more about politics in general, and much of it seems that people just want to expand their own interests and their own goals. There has been talk of funding a rebuild of Trena R, as it was the best location for launches, but that is still being debated. In the meantime, there have been more launches for satellites. Most of these are focused on Vela and learning more about our planet, but some have been pointed outward. I believe that a few are dedicated to communications with your planet. They act as relays for the radio labs here and in Laar. The others are for examining the rest of our system. We have two large asteroids that orbit Vela, Chone and Chona, that look like they may have been one a long time ago. Vela may have had a moon, but something happened to split it in two. The scientists are still studying the data, but I doubt it will be near as interesting as what you get from your bases on Randar and Bradith. I know we are still a long way off from sending a Velen into space. I'm sure there would also be a line of people ready to go like on Haimavina. As much as I would love to be one of them, I fear that by the time it happens, I will be far too old. I just hope that I can at least see the cycle that we take that first swim into a new sea. Have you seen any of the images yet from the mana who have been up? Does your planet look different from above? Oh, the wonders they must be seeing. I can also imagine the excitement of your scientists discovering more and more about your moon bases. Just think of all of the answers those places could hold about your people's past. Please keep me updated. As for things here, I have been officially reassigned to the Diplomatic Corps and am getting ready for my first mission venturing down into Chinar. We have been asked to provide mediation between the Council and the Larva sect. I mean, I probably won't be doing much mediation as I'm just there to set up networks and provide communication assistance. Nothing like being a technical support engineer to a bunch of the above-mentioned politicians. On the uptide, I finally get to ride in an air skiff. I know they're fairly commonplace now, but I still have yet to be on one. Hopefully, I won't get as sick as I did on the skiff voyage here from Senoth. Our journey starts in Chonar, but we'll venture all the way down to the southern coast to meet with all of the separate subfactions. Tensions have been very high as of late, and Senoth is feeling the impact of the sanctions that Chonar has applied. Sadly, food is the biggest concern. Costs have gone up dramatically, and many people in smaller cities around Laar are being hurt. The goal is to get supply lines running again at least. There have been a few skirmishes in some areas around Sonoth, mostly from folks just trying to get access to food. I'm hopeful that we can turn the tide and work things out before the waters get too deep. There was a very small incident out the council's main building in Laar. It seems that someone broke in during an important debate and attempted to set off some sort of explosive device. The device was something that we've never seen before, using what looked like ground-up black rocks. Well, thankfully the device failed due to moisture and the whole attempt failed. The downtide to this is that Father was next to talk in the debates, and because of the attack, the whole building went on lockdown. Afterwards, he and many of the other council members were put into protective custody for nearly a full annul. He's okay and no one was hurt, this certainly explained why I was unable to reach him for a while. A few cycles after the incident, his assistant contacted me and let me know what was going on and that everyone was safe. 
I'm sure that your people will be pleased to know that the punishment for this incident was merely a short imprisonment. The assailant was released back to Chonar and his travel access was revoked. The device he used, though, is troublesome. After the forensics team was able to examine it, they said that once dried out, it could have done some serious damage. I'm not sure where this type of material is coming from. It's very disturbing. Well, I'm glad I was able to send this out before leaving. I am going to have all my messages routed through Father's office while I'm gone. He will be forwarding them on to me should anything come in. He is aware of the encryption as well. I don't hide anything from him, so feel free to do the same. Also, Sea Slug. May the waves guide you. Gisto. Log entry, Hymavina 14, 2271, 71st year in the Age of Ascendance. Hey, hey, Gisto. Well, I'm back up at base camp working on a news segment about the ancient network array EC has been exploring. As I get ready for this show, I'm really struck by how incredible that the first discovery was 14 years ago. Even more mind-blowing is how much has been found in those years, now that we know what we're looking for. The ancient mana were so much more advanced than we realized. What's maybe more incredible, on a personal level, is that about 20 years ago, I was just an intern up here. Aside from the discoveries, not much has changed about base camp. Well, it's definitely bigger, and there are more residential buildings and research facilities, but it's basically the same town. You would think with all the money EC has, they could freshen up base camp, but apparently not. They even serve the same pickled fisca and day-old bread in the cafeteria. I come up here fairly frequently, maybe two or three times a year, but it really dawned on me the other day that it's been 20 years since the first time I walked off the hopper pad into base camp. 20 years since I looked at the glaciers and thought I was on another planet. 20 years since I was attacked by a nice lion. <laughs> Funny enough, while I was wandering around base camp yesterday, having this epiphany, I ran into my old friend Thaya, who is now a site director up here. She told me I was at least the seventh person she's run into that same day from our time back when we were interns. Naturally, we tracked everyone down, and it turned into a little academy class of 2250 reunion. We swapped stories, laughed about pranks we pulled, and caught everyone up on what and where people are now. I'm a little ashamed to say that after many rounds of drinks, the intern stone was reinitiated. Don't ask, it's a long and unflattering story. The night went off the glacier when Bjorn pulled out a secret stash of 25-year-old proxy, and the night turned into mostly yelling drunken sailing songs. I'm happy that my flight wasn't this morning. Being hungover on a hopper is one of the worst experiences on Heimavina. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to give you a preview of what we have found up here, and what I'll be covering for my JCN segment. 14 years ago, Field explorers discovered the first antenna I told you about, the same one I was so upset about losing out on the presentation. Since then, we've discovered probably several thousand more just like it, distributed across the continent. But most are locked beneath hundreds of meters of ice. EC network engineers have spent the better part of a decade trying to figure out how to power the antenna, often with pretty crude brute force attempts. To put it bluntly, they have burnt out the components in at least a dozen antennas by connecting our generators to the array. Our best guess is that they didn't use such a high voltage 2,000 years ago. After each failed attempt, they have to locate the next one, dig it out, 
recalibrate their power and try again. I'm not an engineer, but when I bring up how wasteful this process has been, I get a lot of techno gibberish, but I bet you could have all this figured out in no time. In classic mana being dumb and something good happens fashion, this series of mistakes led EC to our larger hub. The last tower is connected to a small building, about the size of my first room here up at base camp. The building contained what EC engineers had described to me as a hub for a broader antenna array, complete with computer components. The whole setup is linked to a generator that probably served as a backup power source from which our technicians were able to reverse engineer the correct power settings for the ancient equipment. The generator itself ran on some sort of ancient fuel, which has mostly evaporated except for a thick sludge at the bottom of the tank. EC chemists have determined that the fuel was derived from some sort of geological altered biomass that is probably millions of years old when the ancient mana dug it up. We're pretty sure that the fuel was highly toxic when it burned, which has us all wondering why they use it as a fuel source. Anyway, that hub led us to an even larger ancient facility that EC began exploring a few years ago and are only now letting the press and the public learn about their progress. The facility looks like a computer greenhouse, for a lack of a better term. There are racks and racks of components in little rows, well, like crops. <laughs> the technology in this facility is unlike anything we've ever seen before, but at the same time, it makes a certain amount of sense. EC network engineers, computer scientists, and linguists are working as fast as they can, but they have told me they're already certain that it's some sort of network hub or perhaps a data center. While the layout is similar to our existing technology, actually getting the equipment powered on is another story. There's no on button, and nobody is letting anyone just hook up random power cables. So enough about what's going on here. What's going on with the council? Another Gisto, something's happening. The Eldfall Siren just went. Gisto, this is Jan. I work with Iria at JCN. Yuri was able to contact me via radio and asked me to send a transmission to let you know she's okay. There was a massive volcanic eruption in the Twin Sisters region that has released huge clouds of ash and dust into the atmosphere. Yuri is still up at base camp covering the story for JCN, and I'm back in Hopnina, brushing ash from my hair and feeding Luna. I'm not gonna lie, Justo. I'm scared for her safety, but I'm also jealous. What an opportunity for a journalist. Anyway, sorry. Hopefully, this transmission reaches you. Several of the antenna arrays were damaged in the eruption and we're experiencing atmospheric interference due to the ash and the dust. How am I supposed to end one of these? Haimavina, out. Log entry, Vela 14, Vela Rotat, 2593, cycle, Five of the third annal. Iria of Hemavina. I am hoping this will reach you and that you are safe. We don't have enough data on how geologically active your twin sister's area is, nor how long on average that magmatic eruptions last on Hemavina. Given the relative air temperature at the surface, I would expect less than a quarter annual, but the data just isn't there to infer an actual hypothesis. So I must settle for hope. Gisto asked me to write you if he had not returned to us by the time of the next signal window. He has indeed not returned to CNR, nor is it likely that he will do so in the near future. 
I will do my best to relay the current state of his affairs, and he would like to have done so himself. I should also apologize. My son is the writer and the wit, a trait in which he is definitely downstream from his mother. It is certainly not my chosen current. My son is still abroad with the diplomatic corps. He communicates with me when he can, but it has been with less and less frequency as of late. At first it was every few cycles, then once a quarter annual, then a half. As of now, I have not heard from him in well over an annual. He mentioned that due to his work that this could be one of the many outcomes. It is simply that we don't know enough to determine with any accuracy which of any myriad of outcomes has occurred. Is it that the communication network is broken? Is it that his transmissions are being intercepted, so we must remain silent to ensure his team's safety? All of these are possibilities, but he assured me that this could occur and that I shouldn't be concerned. But as a father, I always will be. It seems the only constant in my life these cycles is the lack of known data. I'm beginning to resent it. It is a very difficult time to be my son, a northerner on the southern side of the world. After the attempted attack two rotats ago in Lahar, involving the new black sand explosive material, political tension between Senoth and Sonoth escalated quickly. Reactionary elements in Lahar condemned the attack and attempted to trace the current back to some southern source, but little has been publicly released. Nothing more happened for a while, but in the last rotat, two more attacks have happened, this time regrettably successful. The new technology of black sand creates an unprecedented exothermic explosive reaction. In each case, government or science facilities were targeted, and in each case, lives were lost. The Arva sect in Eastern Sanoth took responsibility claiming that they were doing what was necessary to clean the waters of Vela. How you clean water with this much blood is beyond my strength to swim. After the second incident, the Laar Council sent a formal envoy to Chonar, demanding that they bring the zealots to account. I won't go into the futility of politics, but after much churn, a little swimming, Chanar publicly disavowed the Larva radicals. However, they've had little success in dredging them up. It's common belief that there are parts of the Sonoth government that are shielding and even funding these dissidents. Add to the threat of attack a subtler, no less savage means of weakening the North, shipment sanctions. The South has always been the main means of supplying food for itself and for the North. Food and raw materials come north, finished goods and technology returns south. It's been this way for a very long time. We tell ourselves that we depend on each other, but the reality is that it's a one-sided trade. It's difficult, but not impossible, to live without modern technology and conveniences. Same cannot be said of food. The South has always had an advantage in this, and when the Larvan leaders have enough political clout, as they usually do, 
They have the power to essentially starve us in the north. Uh, it has never come to this before, but all things change. I will shield you from any detailed description of the kind of desperation that has gripped the people in the capital. Seeing the young more bone than muscle is a pain I would spare anyone. And the crime statistics are worse than ever. Beings will do the unthinkable to ensure they and their kin have food in the bowl. It has been shocking and frustrating to see one's people lose their civility so easily. We are closer to animals than we truly care to admit. <laughs> Enter Magisto. He shipped off with the diplomatic corps to attempt outreach with the larva and high believers to try and calm the waves. Since Chonar has essentially dropped any intent of helping stem the attacks to the depths, Gisto's team is attempting outreach to the leaders of the Larvan community. This has had some positive effect, at least. They have convinced the sect's political minds of their benevolent intent, and they were able to loosen the sanctions on food and material shipments to Senoff. Vital supplies are slowly reaching the needful areas of the north, and this means that Lar isn't at risk of starvation anymore. I know my son isn't doing these things directly. He's not a diplomat, though I like to believe he could have been. But he's helping the ones who are to communicate and keep in touch over long distances. He's using the gifts of keen mind and applied principles to help keep his team and friends safe and in contact with those they need to report to. I cannot be more proud of him. I don't wish to worry you, but I am worried, so telling you not to be would be hypocritical. Desun Rogesto. Log entry, Haimavina 15, 2273, 73rd year in the Age of Ascendance. Dizun, thank you for getting back to me and letting me know about Gisto. I feel like I've known you my entire life, and it's nice to finally communicate with you. I figured Gisto would be worried about me, but here I am, concerned for him again, especially with all the attacks happening. I don't know what to say about the violence. I can only imagine how frightening it is for you all. I'm very sorry to hear that lives were lost. No one should lose anyone to violence. We, Haimavina that is, figured after what happened with the launchpad incident that Sinoth and Sonoth could come together like our Samkoma did. I guess we were wrong. I know you said not to worry, but I do. Ever since, well, I still feel bad that I wasn't there for him, but I know that he's okay. He's probably working too hard trying to make all the communication lines perfect, I bet he's already found a way to strengthen the signal and you will be hearing from him very soon. What is funny is that no matter what the species, fathers are always the same, always warriors. He's okay. I just know it. As Jan mentioned to Gisto, one of the dormant volcanoes in the Twin Sisters range erupted unexpectedly. Fortunately for JCN, their hotchat science and technology correspondent was already on site. Me. <laughs> I was up at base camp for about 36 hours in the immediate aftermath of the eruption, and I was able to cover a lot of what happened. Unfortunately, we lost access to a great deal of information and several lives were lost. 
As a scientist, I'm sure you will appreciate as much data as possible, so rather than listen to me recount the events of two years ago, I've managed to include an abbreviated transcript of the broadcast JCN ran during the event. What follows is an abridged transcription of the broadcast led by JCN daytime anchor Eric Larson and S&T correspondent Iria Nuthpark from the Twin Sisters Base Camp. The transcript has been edited for concision and to remove advertisements. If you're just joining us now, we have breaking news from the Twin Sisters Base Camp. The once dormant volcano Anafjall has erupted. Right now, we're going live to our very own Iria Nuthpark who happened to be up at base camp on another story when Anafel decided to wake up. Iria, can you tell us what's happening up there? Thanks, Eric. Well, as you can see in the distance behind me, we're in what the Yothian Geological Institute volcanologists are telling me is the early phase of a volcanic eruption. Anafel is one of three dormant volcanoes in the Twin Sisters region that has been sleeping for over a thousand years. Geologists have been monitoring the situation for a few months now and earlier today, the mountain began to wake up. The first eruption, which occurred about an hour ago, was just Anafial clearing her throat. Geologists up here tell me we can expect her to sing in a matter of hours. The area around Anafial is not geologically unstable, but for several months, there has been a noticeable uptick in seismic activity. Most of it is too small to be felt, and geologists have chalked it up to cracking and shifting of the ice within the glaciers. Fascinating area. Are there many volcanoes in the Twin Sisters region? The Twin Sisters mountain range is part of a network of volcanic rifts that cross the entire planet. The boundaries of these tectonic plates are home to about 80% of the world's known volcanoes. The Twin Sisters region straddles the tectonic plate boundary between the Yothian and Zanian plates. As the plates pull apart, lava rises to the surface. Haimavina is an icy world, and no matter where you are on the planet, there's water below you. When hot magna rises close to the surface, it heats up the water in the ground and can build up enormous pressure. Most Yothians are familiar with the steam vents around Braga, which naturally release the pressure. In the area without vents, or that is trapped under ice, the pressure can build up to a point where it causes an explosion. Wow, I've been to Braga with my family dozens of times. I guess I didn't realize it was a volcano. Can you tell us what to expect from the eruption? The geologists here expect when Anafial does go up, it will be in a classic vertical eruption and affect a relatively limited area some distance from base camp. They're not anticipating any direct threats to the local communities because Anafial is covered in glaciers, the eruption could trigger pyroclastic flows and mudslides. Additionally, I am told that Anafial erupts on one of her flanks, the effects could be much more devastating for the region. Such an eruption would almost certainly cause a massive melting of the glaciers. All the relevant authorities are monitoring the situation and I have been asked to advise residents in the region to prepare for evacuation. This could come with very little warning, so please listen for the sirens and stay tuned to JCN for breaking updates. Iria, I'm just going to reiterate for our viewers that anyone watching JCN will see breaking updates for evacuations as they are announced by the government. Please take these warnings seriously. It could mean your life. So. Are they evacuating any of the research teams that are in the region? Yes. EC and the other organizations, universities, and tourists are in the process of being evacuated either down to base camp or out of the mountain range. Base camp has become ground zero for search and rescue. Unfortunately, it's a slow process because the hoppers cannot fly in the ash, and the rescue teams have to use ice crawlers to bring people down. 
We're seeing some fantastic shots of the eruption. How are you getting those? We're lucky to have our aerial imaging team on site, and they're helping us get JCN an exclusive look at the volcano. Base camp is right at the edge of the safety zone for toxic fumes and ash. As you can see from the footage, the volcano is creating pools of lava wider than several football fields, and the ash cloud is now almost two kilometers high. Whoa! Eric, are you seeing this? Hopnina is going to have quite a view in just a minute. Eric, we can see the plume from Hopnina. I'm sure folks outside are getting quite a view. I'm being told that the eruption is vertical, which is good. We're being ordered inside for safety. The aerial imaging team can still control their cameras from inside, so you will all get a first-hand account of this historic event. The massive plume of ash is not something anyone's going to forget. Be careful up there, Iria. The broadcast has been edited for concision. Good morning, everyone. I'm sorry to bring you the news that there are currently 27 people missing after the eruption of Anafal yesterday afternoon. The eruption has radically changed the look of the peak and the glacier below it. Geologists are saying this is one of the largest eruptions we've had this close to a populated area. We head back to the Twin Sisters base camp where Area News Park is reporting on the search and rescue situation. Thanks, Eric. Rescue operations are ongoing, but the hoppers are still grounded due to the ash, so the progress has been agonizingly slow. Ice crawlers were running above base camp through the night and early morning hours, and I'm told several rescue personnel are also missing at this point. It is dangerous work, but no one is stopping. The winds have kept most of the ash away from base camp, but the smell of sulfur is very strong. As you can tell, the ash continues to billow from Anafiol, and the plume is probably several kilometers high. Well, hopefully no more people go missing. Has there been any damage as a result of the eruption? Yes, unfortunately there has been significant losses. I was just informed a few minutes ago by EC scientists that the entire ancient facility was destroyed in a mudslide last night. We are all worried about those who are trapped or have been injured, but I cannot underscore how significant the loss of that site is. The transcript jumps several hours ahead. Tonight, travelers across Jothia are stranded due to Anafial. Everyone in the capital area can see the plume in the air and the massive ash cloud is being blown across the entire region. Commercial air traffic has been suspended and the ECAL launch area has been forced to suspend operations. Tonight, we were supposed to be covering ECAL's first manned launch to Braddock Station, but it looks like Anafal has her own opinion about that. The transcript skips ahead a day. As we begin tonight's broadcast, we can tell you that the ash cloud from Anafal is still affecting travel and air quality. However, there does appear to be some good news as shifting winds appear to be clearing the sky dramatically. We are taking you back to Area Noof Park up at base camp. Thanks, Eric. As you can see, the air up here at base camp has gotten much more clear since our last broadcast. EC scientists I've spoken to seem very confused, and the best answer I've gotten is a shift in upper atmospheric winds. As you can see, I'm wearing my air tubes because while the air may be clearing, the ash is still very dangerous. Additionally, we're getting sporadic reports that personnel on high altitude stations are being evacuated with symptoms that mimic hypoxia. Transcript ends. Dizun, I'm sure it doesn't come as a surprise to know that the superstitious environmentalist party has gone into total meltdown. They claim the volcano was a sign that Haimovina is telling us to stop. However, the EC and the Yothian Geological Institute have been working overtime to approve the eruption 
while certainly close to a heavily populated area, was a completely natural occurrence. A closer look at the data has shown that this supposedly dormant volcano wasn't dormant at all and has erupted at least three times in the past thousand years. I can assure you that some people at the Geological Institute will be in front of tenure boards before the year is out. You can tell Gisto that I'm impressed that I'm going to be named after a sea slug on another planet. For the record, they are quite a delicacy here, and only the very rich can afford it because they live at great depths. I'm touched that he would think so highly of me. <laughs> Area. Log entry, Fella 15. Fella Rotat, 2595. Cycle 10 of the fourth annual. Dear friend Iria, please, for the love of the rain, stay safe out there. The events happening on Hymovina sound like a nightmare playing out and make all of the tensions here sound trivial. Sadly, because of my travels here, I didn't receive the transmission until much later, and then I learned that my father had replied. I feel like I should clear the waters from what my father had said. Father is not really good with speaking in general. He spends so much of his time analyzing systems and working with technical information that he tends to not convey things in a way that you or I understand them to be. I love him dearly, but sometimes he comes across a little colder than normal. The attacks he spoke of were very small. There were only two since the failed attack he was involved in, and in both of those cases, I believe the reports came back that only three Velens were affected. One of them was the perpetrator of the attack, it seems that the black sand device that he was using went off before he could get clear, and it took his life. The other two individuals were innocent, and all of Vela and apparently Hymovina mourned their passing. This is nothing compared to the loss of mana life you are experiencing now, and all of Vela has woken up to the devastation on your planet. News of the event there has been broadcast all over, and support for your planet has been pouring in. We know that there isn't much that we can do from such a distance, but the healing waves are being sent. Your transcript of the events was very informative. You sound like such a professional. I mean, I'm sure that you are very professional in what you do, but it's still one thing to believe it and another thing to see it in your work directly. You seem to have really found your place and it shows in your reporting. I was fascinated by the report and had to balance it with my feelings of pride. The broadcasts here have all picked up on the transcript and they're running it almost verbatim to relate what's going on back there. Every time I see them come up, I'm a swirl of emotions from worrying about you and being proud of the work that you're doing. If one can glean good news from this event, the events unfolding on Hymovina have caused the Council and Chonar to put aside their differences and work together to stop the attacks and ease tensions. The Tumisur sect in Laar have begun to look into more planet-sustaining techniques and how things like what is happening there could be predicted or prevented here. This was one of the major concerns of the La'ar Va sect, so that has eased some of the tensions with them as well. It saddens me to think that it would take something as catastrophic as the event on your planet to bring my planet together, but I'm glad that we have finally started to see the calm after the storm. I also wish that I had been there for you when this happened, as I mentioned, during some of the minor skirmishes in Sonoth, many of the towers around Chonar and other places were damaged and inoperable. This is what caused the issues with the communications that my father had mentioned. Many of our signals were cut off. The rest was that we needed to remain quiet, to mask where my team was going, 
so that we could arrive there without incident. This was honestly the most annoying part of the trip. I have spent my whole life being able to communicate, and to be cut off like this was like being in the deep water at night with no lights. When I finally got access and father forwarded your message, I have been worried ever since. I thought about sending you something, but he assured me that he replied and that I should just wait for your next response. Are there many other volcanoes on Haimavina? Do you think that something like this could happen again? I'm not even sure how to fathom the worry your people must have over this. I know you and all of your scientists at the base camp have been working tirelessly on this, but has anyone discovered how this happened? Was it just a natural event or did something actually cause the eruption to happen? I'm sure I'm not the only one asking these questions, but I am genuinely concerned. We don't have many occurrences of volcanoes here on Vela. The ones that I know of are all underwater and don't impact the surface much at all aside from heating the water around them. In other waters, it would appear that the work I have been doing with the Diplomatic Corps has been having an effect. Aside from Velens coming together due to the events there, the DC has been working with smaller cities around Chonar and pushing further south on Sonoth to mediate and it appears to be working. Tensions have eased and we have even gotten Chonar to acknowledge the issues with the dissidents from the Larva sect. They have begun working with the local officials to break up any of the potential extremist groups that could cause further problems for our negotiations. They have even re-evaluated the disciplinary actions and instituted a more compassionate form of punishment that befits the crimes perpetrated, so there should be no more drowning. As you can guess, I am still out on this mission with the DC. We have helped to rebuild many of the towers and much of the infrastructure for communication, so while I am still having messages forwarded to me from Laar, I am at least able to get them and reply. When it comes time for your next transmission, I will make a point to find a way to get it and reply back directly. The last thing I need is for my father to start some interplanetary incident with his lack of decorum. Ugh, fathers. So in an interesting turn of the tide, now it's our turn to detect a weird signal. One of the other DC teams working just off the coast started getting some strange readings coming from deep underwater of the southern coast of Sonoth. They put out word to all of the teams to see if anyone had experience with something of this nature, and everyone started to point to me. Because of this, I have now been retasked to a new team that is being assembled to investigate. I will be helping to run operations from on the skiff and on the coast. There will be a dive team going into the depths to uncover what could be causing these signals. It's not anything that we're familiar with, and right now it's still very faint. It will be a while before we know what it is and if we can recover it, so for now I can only keep you updated on the progress. I was so looking forward to going home to Sinar and possibly even visiting Father in Laar for a while, but it would seem that this mission is never ending. I am glad that as of your last transmission that you are safe, but I hope for your continued safety. Maybe you should stop going to base camp. It seems that every time you go there, something else bad happens. May the waves protect you. Gisto. You have been listening to an episode of Binary Saga. The part of Gisto was read by Steve Petricelli. The part of Iria was read by Vanessa Shannon Anderson. The parts of Jan and Eric were read by Paul Anderson. The part of Dizun was read by Caleb Graham. 
Music by Eric Matias and soundimage.org. Binary Saga is available on all podcast mediums, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Google Play. For more information, visit binarysaga.com.